All right. I need to do something today I don't like to do. You know, occasionally we go into like nerdy offshoots of the sermon. We've got to start with a nerdy offshoot today, okay? Um, we're going to preach an interesting passage today that I need to talk about first. And some of you will not care about this at all. Some of you will care about this, but I think it's helpful to talk about for all of us um, just because people ask certain questions about why we do what we do as a church. Um, I'm going to preach a passage today that I really don't think was in the original version of the Gospel of John. Okay, this may sound weird to you, but uh, we have, um, uh, with any ancient document, many people don't know this, but we don't have the original copy of any of these books. Okay, we do not have the copy of John that was written by John. We, at best have a copy that was written 150, 200 years later. And so we always have to kind of trust that we have the original material. Now, we have good reasons for that. Uh, this is true of any ancient book. If you want to read um, the Odyssey or the Iliad or um, Socrates or Plato or any of those ancient authors, you're getting the same thing, except there's a lot less copies and they're a lot less cl uh, close in time to the original writing. Okay, so if you believe that when you pick up a copy of Plato, you've got Plato, you can believe that when you pick up a copy of John, you actually have John. But the thing is, the oldest manuscripts we have of John is missing the story that we're about to read. Uh, not only is it missing it, but in some copies it's added, but it's tailed on at the end or they put it in different places. This is the biggest sign to us that it wasn't originally there is when this copy has it in chapter seven and this you know, copy has it in chapter eight and it starts moving around in the manuscripts. That's a real problem. Um, and so usually I would not preach a passage like that. Uh, when you pull out your Bibles today and we go uh, to John 8, you're probably going to see that it's in italics or there's going to be a big honking note on it in your Bible. Even a uh, Bible gateway on, online or something like that is going to do that. So why am I preaching it? Uh, there's a couple reasons. We're going through a series about being next to Jesus. And we're talking about stories of what it was like to be near Jesus. And we have a woman today who has an incredible experience of being next to Jesus. So it just fits our sermon series. Uh, more importantly, this story feels authentic. That sounds really willy-nilly way to talk about it. But this story, Jesus is being consistent with the way he acts in all the other stories about Jesus. In fact, I feel somewhat confident that John may have wrote this. It just wasn't in the book of John. And somebody said, hey, we have a book of John. We have this story that John wrote. We should put it in there, right? Um, I really believe that this happened. I believe that this is a story that really happened to Jesus. And I believe that the reason it got added at some point is it was too good to leave out. And I trust God and the Holy Spirit to work to put it in the Bible the right way. But it is, if you read it, if you pick up your Bibles, there's going to be big honking footnotes, okay? And we are going to just accept the footnote and move on. Like I said, that's something that many of you probably don't care about. But some of your friends will be like, well, did you know that story is not originally in the Bible? You can go, yes, I do. And I have a lot of thoughts about how the Holy Spirit guided scripture so that that was supposed to be there. Right? So that is the passage we are going to talk about today. I promise no more nerdy um, off ramps for the rest of the sermon. Okay. Well, I can't promise that, but mostly. Uh, if you're new with us, we also do a question and answer period at the end of our sermons. So if you, as we're talking, come up with a question today or you want to even talk about that, we will uh, have opportunity to do that in a little bit. All right, it's 2.30 in the morning, 
and you are driving on a country road in the middle of nowhere. There is not a living soul for miles. And you come to a stoplight. Why is there a stoplight? Who knows? But you're in the middle of a country road. There's nobody near. It's 2 a.m. and it's red. What will you do at the stoplight? Go ahead. Most of you. What would you do? Everybody's going to stop, right? I mean, not, not every. This is interesting. Courtney is a non-stopper. But, uh, you know, like most of us, we're going to stop. We're paranoid about it. We just cannot go through that light because we are instinctually, as Americans, kind of rule followers, right? We were in Boston the other night with someone I'll leave unnamed for his own protection. And he was jaywalking all over the place, right? There would be a crosswalk four feet down the road, but he had to jaywalk. And I'm like, oh, you person, stop doing that. Let's go to the crosswalk. Because we like to follow the rules. And we like to have an ordered society. Uh, many of you guys know I'm a big Seinfeld fan. George Costanza several times throughout Seinfeld has this quote that I use all the time. He's uh, trying to get a t the time. And he says, hey, do you have a watch? Can you tell me what time it is? And the guy goes, there's a clock down the hall. He goes, yeah, but you have a watch on your hand. And the guy goes, I don't want to look at my watch. And he goes, we live in a society, right? That there are norms, there are rules, there are social ways you interact. You should act like you're in a civilization. You need to follow the rules. And we kind of get to this interesting situation where we have to ask ourselves, how much are we going to follow the rules? Some of us like to fudge on them a little bit, right? Some of us need to like to be like this elf. We like to be nice and studious and make sure we check off every rule in the book, never break any of them. And life brings us these challenges of, do you live by rules or do you kind of live by the spirit of the rule, right? And I think if we are honest about Jesus, he is frustrating in the way that he applies these things. Because often he goes about rules in a very difficult to understand way. And this story is a great example of that. All right, John chapter 8, verse 2. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the, law of Mo in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So uh, we have this moment. Um, this is kind of extreme, right? A woman caught in the act of adultery. There is no way to soft pedal this into a PG version, right? This woman was with a man that was not her husband and they ran in and they grabbed her. Maybe they threw a towel around her, right? And they pulled her out in the middle of the city square and they said, we caught this woman sleeping with somebody else's husband. And they do this because the law states very clearly that you are not allowed to do this. The Pharisees are great law keepers and the Pharisees love rules. And the Pharisees have found that this is a rule conundrum that Jesus is going to have trouble with. See, on the one hand, the, the Hebrew Bible clearly says that if you catch someone doing this, you should stone them. Just throw rocks at them until they die. 
which I know is very extreme and makes us very uncomfortable with the Hebrew Bible, and we could talk about that another time. But this is what the law says. And the Pharisees are okay with that. The problem is the Romans are not. You may remember that when Jesus is killed, right, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the time don't kill Jesus. They take him to the Roman governor because they know that when you handle your own executions, the governor gets a little upset. That's not your right, right? This is why we don't do lynch mobs anymore. You make somebody go to court and go through a court, uh, trial system. And so they know that he either can violate the law of the Hebrew Bible, the law of God, by not stoning this woman, or he can violate the law of Rome and be part of an execution that he's not allowed to be part of. Uh, what I want you to note is that while the Pharisees are so wrapped up and concerned with these rules, there is one thing that they are not concerned with one bit, and that is this woman. This is terrible. You know, like, I don't know what kind of person she was. Maybe she enjoyed breaking up other people's marriages. I'm guessing not. I'm guessing she's like many of us, that she got herself into a situation that she just kind of got over her head. Have you ever gotten to a space where you're doing something you know you shouldn't be doing and you feel bad about doing it, but you just kind of got there and you don't know how to get out? And in the midst of that, she is getting dragged before the world and being shamed for her actions. And these Pharisees don't care. They don't care how she feels about it. They don't care about the shame on her. They don't care about the fact she might die. You know, if this woman gets killed by the crowd, they're like, whatever, at least we got Jesus to get in trouble with the Romans. Like they have no concern for this person's life or dignity because they just want to catch Jesus breaking the rules because the Pharisees always care more about the rules than they care about the people the rules were made for. And in the midst of that, um, we just see real disconcern for her. It's kind of interesting. We can ask ourselves some interesting questions. Um, there's a guy in Athens, Greece, that I went to a Bible study he was running. The guy's name's Alex. And Alex uh, is a teacher in the church there. And the way he told this story is he, he was getting into it. And he goes, how do you think that they knew that this woman was in adultery? We we're like, well, I don't know. He goes, I think they all were getting a little salsa on the side. You know what I mean? <laughs> his theory was that all of these Pharisees were themselves sleeping with this woman. And this is how they knew she was committing adultery, right? Because they themselves were immoral. That They were doing things they were not supposed to do. Uh, you know, how did they know about that? There's also, I do want to take a moment for our current concerns to recognize that this is part of the systemic mistreatment of women that we still see to this day, right? Takes two people to commit adultery generally, right? We don't see any men being dragged to the city square and saying, Jesus, you should stone this man, right? They just grab the woman because this is what society since Jesus' time have been doing. That when there's these issues of impropriety, the woman gets blamed more than the man does, right? And again, these Pharisees are not thinking about her and her needs. And I guess the question for us as we look at the Pharisees and their love of rules is to ask ourselves, do you love the rules? How concerned are you with the rule book? Because see, a lot of your friends, if you go to church and your friends don't, uh, the reason that they don't is because they're worried about the rules, okay? 
Church has become notorious in American religion as a place that tells you what to do and how to behave and how to act and what to do. And religion is kind of combined with a certain kind of moralism where church is a place you go where a guy like me stands up front, maybe in a robe, and looks down his nose at you and tells you how you are not behaving appropriately. And we are somewhat known for our rules and for our willingness to embarrass and publicly shame and do all sorts of things to people if they don't follow the rules the way we want them to follow the rules. And we can say that's an unfair characterization of the church, but we got to deal with it, okay? It's out there. You watch a TV show. Have you ever seen Ned Flanders on The Simpsons? This may not be the right touchstone, but nonetheless, Ned Flanders is the definition of Christianity to many people, right? Or some conservative talk show host, right? Who's just always condemning other people. And so we are challenged with how are we going to handle the rules? How are we going to treat people? See what Jesus says. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down. And he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Uh, just real quick, the older ones first. Uh, if you've ever been on social media and feel like 22-year-old college students are the worst at being self-righteous, it's true. That's in the Bible, okay? It is the older ones who were the first ones to walk. The older ones are like, yeah, man, I'm messed up. It was some like 18-year-old kids like, no, I'm still going to stone her, you know, that had to be shamed by the other older folks walking away, right? Um, it's really interesting. Jesus does what's really helpful for us whenever we talk about rules in the Bible, Okay, because we know there are some rules. There are some guidelines of how to live. It is always helpful to remember that rules are best applied to myself, not to other people. This is the way that it often works in the Bible. The Bible says, do not be greedy, right? And the best way for me to hear that passage is, Caleb, don't be greedy. What are you doing with your own life? But the way we tend to use it is, Alex, you should stop being greedy, right? We all have a person in our head that we want to immediately apply that rule to. And Jesus here is just basically saying, apply it to yourself first. This is like the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you know, take the, the log out of your own eye before trying to take a speck out of somebody else's eye. Always apply it to you first. Uh, this is true. There's passages about husbands and wives in the Bible. You know how those passages are well used? When husbands apply them to themselves and when wives apply them to themselves. Do you know what will cause marital strife? When you tell your wife how to apply the wife passages. Okay, right? This is where we always get into chaos. Jesus says, look to yourself first. If you are able to say that you never have sinned, then chuck the rocks. But if not, get lost. And Jesus is causing them to be self-reflective. When it comes to the rules, we always have to first of all ask if we are admitting our own lack of compliance to them. But here's the really funny thing. When everybody leaves, who's left? Jesus. And he's left because at least the Bible tells us that he is without sin. Right? He says, if any of you are without sin, throw the rocks. 
The interesting thing here is he still could go, all right, my turn, and then reach on down, right? But it's not the way he responds. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus, uh, he just lets her go. And it's really easy, if we're not careful, to make this a passage about comparative morality, right? And don't judge other people because you've got your own stuff. But you, if you do that and only that, you get some of the point, but you miss the point that Jesus has just as much right to stone her. And it is not because the amount of sin that Jesus does not stone her. It is because the amount of grace that Jesus has that he does not stone her. He would have every reason to come down with discipline. And instead, he just comes down with mercy. Um, I want you to recognize for just a minute what's happening here. Because as it comes to how we go about our faith and how we try to live like Jesus, this is really important, I think. Um, Jesus broke the rules. Okay? If you read the Hebrew Bible about adultery, it is clear. This woman is to be stoned. There is a passage, a famous passage, where there is a couple who is committing adultery in Israel. And a man takes a spear and he runs into their tent and he runs the spear through their two bodies one swipe and just stabs them into the ground and kills them. And the story talks about how it's a great warrior of righteousness who is rooting out the evil in the community. And Jesus goes, you know what? That's not, my, that's not how I do it, man. That's not how I go about it. We cannot over, I mean, it's just the facts. This is a, this is a violation of Levitical law. This is Jesus not executing what is there in the scriptures to do. So why doesn't he? Why not? What's he doing with the rules? Some of you might be getting really upset right now because you have grown up in church and you have been told to always follow the rules and you're like, oh, I followed the rules my whole life. Why does Jesus need to break them, right? Or some of you are going, well, it's Jesus. He can break whatever once he wants, right? You know, he's not, he's Jesus. He gets away with it. But what is, what's going on? What's happening here? Jesus frequently in the Gospels says that when it comes to the rules that God has for us, you have got to understand the moral logic behind a rule. You have to understand why it's there and what its purpose is. And sometimes that purpose means you do something different. Um, a great example of this. Jesus' disciples are doing something on the Sabbath that they're not allowed to do, Right? And it's interesting, every time in the Gospels Jesus is accused of breaking a rule, I don't believe there's a single time he ever goes, no, I didn't break that rule. He always says why he has the right to break the rule, right? And here he says they're breaking the Sabbath, and he doesn't go, well, no, 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 that's not a violation of the Sabbath. He goes, yeah, sure, because you know what? The Sabbath was made for humanity. Humanity was not made for the Sabbath. You have the Sabbath to benefit people, Right? He talks about these rules uh, about the temple where there was uh, David was eating temple bread he wasn't supposed to eat. And Jesus goes, that's okay because he was in trouble and he needed help. And the temple is a place of life, not a place of death, right? 
And Jesus constantly goes back to this moral logic of this stuff is here to make you better people. And the Pharisees are using it to make themselves and this woman's life worse. And so Jesus says, I will not do what's there. I will not follow this rule and ruin lives just for the sake of the rule. There is a moral logic behind this that we have to understand. There's a reason why this happened. Um, all right, this is the part where I tell you what not to take out of this sermon because I'm afraid that this is what you're going to hear. I'm afraid that you will walk out the door and you're like, this is a great sermon. Caleb said today, rules don't matter, man. Rules do not matter at all. I can go do whatever I want. I'm going to go rob a bank. Caleb said it was cool. It's moral logic. Banks are made for people, not people for the bank, right? So I'm going to go rob a bank. This is the danger of the sermon. Uh, let's remember that the rules help us. Okay, they existed for a reason. And the reason, sometimes cloudy with some of them I was talking about earlier, but generally the reason was to help you live a well-ordered, meaningful life. In the same way that the lines on the road are not constraints on your liberty, they're anti-collision mechanisms, right? You have lines on the road so you don't hit other cars, not because the government is just no fun, okay? Um, they make a good example of this in the alpha course. They talk about uh, the rules of a game of, of soccer or of football, right? If, you play, if you've ever played with kids that have no rules, if there's no fouls in basketball, it just turns into a fight, right? You just punch people and take the ball. There has to be some kind of rules. And God gave us these rules so that we'd live better, okay? And there are times where what you think is a bad rule is still a good rule. Okay, I was thinking this morning, uh, we live in a culture where um, pornography in many ways is considered to be either harmless or even beneficial to you. And I think scripture would tell you, no, it's not good for you. And it's good to listen to God's rule because you're, you know, we're dumb, God's not, right? And so it is okay for God to tell us what to do. But when it starts coming to how that affects other people, we do have a place to say, what is the purpose of this? Why did God put it there? Where is he ultimately moving towards? What is the fruit of what this is going to mean uh, in our lives and in other people's lives? Because, see, what you'll find is that it seems like there's just different camps that you end up in, right? Some people are just really so anti-rule that they're just, you know, church, Bible, Jesus teachings. It's all junk. We can't have any of it. There should be no rules at all. And then there's other people who are so strict about the rules that they make being a Christian no fun at all, right? They, you know, Jesus says, I came that you may have life abundantly. And they're like, let's just put an asterisk by abundantly. I need to define what abundantly is because I don't want you having too much fun. And Jesus doesn't do any of those things in this passage. In this passage, he shows her incredible grace. But when they're done, he doesn't soft pedal it. He doesn't say, you know, I don't condemn you because you haven't done anything wrong. He says, I don't condemn you. Now stop doing this stuff that you're doing. There are things in your life that are messing your life up. Stop it. The no adultery rule is not the, oh, adultery is so much fun. I don't want you to have fun rule. Okay. The no adultery rule is if you've ever been cheated on, you know the pain that that causes in your life. Right. You know the way it breaks up marriages, the way it breaks up relationships. And so Jesus is not pro-adultery in this passage. He knows that it's causing trouble. 
He just thinks that enforcing his adultery rules need to be done in such a way that it causes this woman to have life and life abundantly, not so that she's dead at a pile of rocks, just so some old Pharisee dudes can be happy with themselves. And so Jesus gives us this path forward where you always put the, rule, the rules to that perspective. What are they for and what do they do? How do they function? How do they bring life? Um, and it all gets back here to this woman. He wanted what was best for her. Uh, we have a lot of opinions on a lot of things that are a whole lot more based on our opinion of that subject than the people it's going to affect, right? This is a great filter to put all your opinions through. If you're like, well, I really think politics thing X. A great filter to put it through is, well, what does that do to human beings? Because Jesus refuses to allow the political context and the religious context and the rules and everything to get in the way of this woman. And he treats her with love and compassion and grace. Um, we've been talking in this series, what's it like to be next to Jesus? Being next to Jesus was being with somebody who cared about you a whole lot more than his moral checklist. Your sickness and your pain, your hunger, your embarrassment, the stuff in your life that is difficult, that is far more important to Jesus than Sabbath rests and stoning and cultural heritage. And that is hard and that requires a whole lot more work than just follow the rules. And it's messy. That's why preachers like follow the rules because we don't like messes, okay? But Jesus ultimately says, I care about you a whole lot more than all this other stuff. Um, may we always be people who love other people far more than our ability to keep a set of rules. All right. I'm a little nervous on this one for some reason. Ask your questions. Do you have anything that you would uh, like to know about the passage, about the sermon, about the application, about why I'm a heretic? I don't know. Whatever you got, just go ahead and uh, shoot me your questions now if you'd like. <laughs> no, no, I am not. Actually, the thing is, I'm actually a real deep rule keeper. Abigail, that's where she gets it from. So this morning I was driving. Uh, I was late getting these guys because I had to pick up a rental car. And I was at a stoplight, and it wasn't in the middle of nowhere, but it was abandoned, and there was no one coming. And I was like, oh, that sermon this morning is already hitting. You know, like, I really want to go through this red light. But, yeah, so that's classic. What is Jesus writing? Uh, I can give you some options that people have put forward. Um, some people have suggested he is writing the sins of the people in the crowd. He goes, hey, listen, whoever you without sin, cast the first stone. And he immediately writes down, like, Jared, pride, you know, and they're like, oh, that's true. And then they walk away. Right. You know, like there's a thought that that's what he's doing. Um, but we don't we don't know. Maybe he's writing down a passage about mercy. I deserve mercy, not sacrifice, something like that. Um, I don't know. So there is this thought sometimes in a religious place of we've got to keep the wall, right? We've got to keep the line. Do not break the line. If we let anything happen that we think might be against the rules, it is a slippery slope and we'll be in hell any minute now, right? 
Um, I think that is true uh, that people think that. My reading of the New Testament is that is never the moral logic of the New Testament. If anything, it's a little bit the opposite. They're like, if we allow Gentiles and we start, I mean, they really thought this. They go, if we start letting eat people eat pork, there's just going to be orgies at church. You know, like this is the next thing that's going to, that sounds crazy to you, but that is not crazy for us first century Jew. Notice when they do, I'm sorry, I'm going on a tangent here, but in Acts 15, right, when they accept the Gentiles into the church and they list the things not to do, they say, don't eat meat that's been strangled and stay away from sexual fornication. Those two things are right next to each other in their brains as stuff Gentiles do. And so if they had that kind of moral logic of, man, if we make one exception, there's going to be a million, then the New Testament church doesn't look like what it does. They always trusted that the Holy Spirit would pull up the reins when, it, when he needed to. So, I mean, if you want my opinion, which reveals much more about me than the woman, I think she was probably different for a week or two, and then she just went back to what she was doing. Just because that's the way human beings tend to be. Like, every once in a while, somebody has a real amazing conversion experience, but it is amazing how often we go. I know, here, that's me, right? I have things in my life I wish I didn't do. I have bad habits. I have personality things that I shouldn't do. And so I repent of them, and I try to get better, and then two or three weeks, I kind of slip back into it. So... I don't know. I mean, that's just speculation. I hope that she left and was was changed forever. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I think it's a it's just, that's a good question. I don't know. Did you have something more uplifting and spiritual? <laughs> We talked about the man at the pool of Bethsaida a few weeks ago. And Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And you're like, well, that's, that's a rude question, Jesus. But then he's healed, and the Pharisees say, why would you pick up your mat? And he's like, oh, it's Jesus' fault. And he didn't know his name. And then later he meets Jesus, and as soon as he meets Jesus, he goes and squeals on him to the Pharisees. <laughs> and you're like, what a jerk. You've just been healed. You just had this experience, and already he's selling him out, you know? So... It suggests that some of the people that were healed by Jesus weren't great folks, but others did have, you know, significant responses. Any other questions? All right. I think we've got one more song and we'll be done.